And we are encountering an interesting transition point in our story. And track with me here how important it is to hold on to this thought. Acts, the book of Acts is going to cover about 30 years of activity. If you sat down to read the book of Acts, it, it's not 30 years of, of information. It, it's maybe, I don't know, an hour and a half. I don't know how long it would take you to read all of the book of Acts just in one setting. It's 30 years of God picking highlights and and saying, I I want the future church to know about this right here. I want them to learn something from this. And I think when we come to scripture, that's exactly what we're always encountering. That's what the Bible is. It's God handpicking certain events certain activities, certain people to put in front of us in order to teach us primarily about himself, to teach us about us, and to teach us about our need for the gospel and what the gospel is. That's what you encounter every time you open the Bible. So we're reading today, and I've titled this message, Lessons from the Villains. You know, there's there's villains. These are stories. And if you're a literature fan or, or maybe, you, you know, literature is giving way to movies these days and you're a movie fan, well, you love a good story. You know, you love the, the elements that make a story capture your attention. And one of the things that, and this is just a reality, one of the things that makes movies really attractive to us is when there's a, when there's a this is hard to say, when there's a good bad guy in it, you know, when there's a, there's a real villain in it. I mean, the, the quality of the villain drives your appreciation for the quality of the goodness that's overcoming that villain in the movie. Right? So everybody right now, you can remember movies that you saw where you just, and even though you're a Christian, you love to hate that guy. You know, it's like, I, I've seen movies where this guy played a, a character and he was so convincingly hateable that any movie I've ever seen him in, I still hate him. I mean, he could be like a nice guy in this movie over here, but it's like, I hate that guy, man. I'm still remembering what he did. Well, there's villains in scripture and God has included them in these presentations to us. I think we're supposed to learn something from these villains. And in the story today, we're going to transition out of sort of the good stuff that's happening in the storyline of God. You know, if I play the piano here. Um, yeah, you should all be concerned. This is, this is the passages we're coming out of. You know. We're having passages that sound like... And then we're about to go into passages that sound like... Right, dark keys, minor music, the shift from really good things are happening, right? Well, thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, that was, it took me longer to prepare that than the message actually, but uh, so thank you. Thank you for your appreciation. <laughs> uh, but you know, when, when, when you're watching Luke Skywalker and his guys, his gang, you know, the mood is nice and it's fun music and there's good things happening. And then all of a sudden you kind of get this, the page turns and you go across the universe to Darth Vader 
and the dark side and the music all changes. They got their own theme music, right? That comes in in that moment. Well, that's about what we're about to see right here. As we read these passages, we're going to transition from the good guys to the villains. We're going to, we're going to go over to the dark side and stop for a moment and think, what, what is it that makes villains do what they do? Why, why are villains villainous? What motivates them? You know, when you watch stories like Star Wars, you know, you find out there was this stuff that happened in Vader's background that, that turned him to the dark side and he became evil. He became motivated by something in his life. Well, listen, that's, that's not just movie stuff, right? There, we're, we're a room full of people who face the opportunity to turn to the dark side, so to speak to play the role of a villain. Right? Now you, you be honest with yourself. If I were to ask you right now, are you protagonist, antagonist? In, in, your, in your own little plot, the storyline you're a part of, you know, at work, with your family, amongst friends, amongst your gang. You know, gang used to be, you know, this, this in the hood, you were a part of, you know, it was a gang. There's gangs in here. You know, they got Facebook gangs. You know, you're, Got your friends and you defriend some people and they're from the other side of the tracks now and you don't associate with them. As a matter of fact, you kind of highlight junk about them. Now, that's just a different attitude, right? So do you, are you a villain in any of those settings? Are you the bad guy in any of those moments? Do you ever see yourself as the villain? You know, I'm the guy right now everybody's hacked off at. I'm the guy who's done something again, make everybody mad, change the atmosphere. Maybe you're the family villain. You used to call you the black sheep, you know? You're the villain, man. You're the, you're the guy bringing the bad news into the moment. I right, question, what, what's motivating you in the moment when you decide to play the part of the villain? And all of us are tempted in that moment. When you come in for counseling, husbands and wives, one of you is the bad guy. I'm sorry. It's just the reality. Actually, quite honestly, usually both of them are the bad guy, right? <laughs> There's very few moments where we walk away from a meeting going, wow, one of them was really 100% pure. That's great. <laughs> you know, villain. Something gets inside of us and motivates our lives to make certain decisions, to live a certain way. Well, that's true of our cast of characters here today, right? So when we're in Acts chapter 5... Last week we looked at verse 12, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. There was miracles taking place, people who were sick, lifelong illnesses are being radically changed. Folks who were lame and begging in chapter three have been set free from those situations. Demonic forces that have been holding people in their grip and making their lives miserable. The power of God is there. Lives are changing. People are celebrating. There's this lightness and this joy that's come in amongst the people of God. And then somebody starts playing from the black keys. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and asked and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people 
all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came, now I can see this guy, he walks in like Vader. You know, he's all dressed in black and just robe behind him. And the high priest gets highlighted a lot in, in, in scripture. He's, he's a villainous bad guy. When the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, but they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked in the grounds, the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would, what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people, right? Villains have to be clever in the way in which they go about their work. When they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I love that phrase. I had no idea what they were saying, but if you understand the New Testament, isn't that exactly what they intended to do? Yeah, in in a gracious way. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Lord, thank you for your word, living and active as it is. Oh God, in this time we have together to open this living word and to be gathered before you and in your presence. Lord, prepare our hearts. Give us understanding about the lives that we are living. 
bring revelation, insight, conviction, motivation into our hearts as we understand the word that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wrote down in your outline there a little chalkboard lesson that we're about to see unfolded here. And really, it's the lesson that takes place every day of our lives, right? Here's the classic life equation. Ambition plus emotion yields actions, right? That's you and I on a daily basis. That is how we live our lives. Ambition plus emotion yields actions, Now, what we tend to bump into the most and what we might be aware of the most is the actions. It's the things that we say, the stuff that we do, the attitude that comes out of us. Am I smiling? Am I angry? What am I communicating to you when I bump into you? Am I impatient? Am I frustrated? Those are my actions. I might take some kind of action against you. It might be physical violence. It might be saying something really insulting or cutting or encouraging or whatever it might be, but I'm taking some kind of action. Where do those actions come from? Well, I put emotion next because I want us to explore ambition last, but also because quite honestly, many of us don't take significant actions until there is significant emotion motivating us. It's almost like emotion is that internal pressure that it's got to get to about right here before some of us will actually move on it, right? We're living together. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that's a good thing right now. (laughs) Quite honestly, some of us live together. We relate to one another, husbands and wives, family members, coworkers. We're in and out of each other's lives on a regular basis and stuff is building up, stuff of offense, stuff of confused thought. Why did you do that? What was that about? And, and we need to communicate. We need to just sit down and have a real honest heart to heart. We need to be humble and say, Hey, I didn't quite understand why you said that. Did I misunderstand what you said? Because it it felt like when you said that, it felt like this to me when you said, all right, that's a healthy conversation, but I don't know what it is about us. Most of us just don't want to have a controlled, healthy conversation. We wait until there is so much pressure inside of us that when the right moment comes, man, I I am so flammable now. I'm just waiting for you to strike a match in my presence and the whole room just goes up in flames and and everything I've been dying to tell you comes out now full force. It's full of anger. My voice is raised. The veins are sticking out of my neck and I'm using words like always and never. Now I'm going to talk. Now, now I'm going to communicate. Where, what's up with that? Or even if we're, maybe we're not hotheads blowing up, but we wait until emotion gets so heavy, so depressing that we take action that is withdrawing. We withdraw from people. We withdraw from life. We take action. We begin to shut down systems, you know, click switches off and turn off relationships and turn off my phone and you can't reach me and I don't want to be around you because emotion finally has gotten so powerful in us that we're going to back off. And we're going to take action now. Listen, that's, that's not a good way to live life, but it's just the facts, isn't it? And come on, in your home, in your life, too many of us, the emotion level has got to get way, way up there until before we'll have a significant conversation. Not supposed to be that way, but 
Reality is, it is that way. And then underneath that is something else that we need to discover. And when we read this story here, these Sadducees and the high priest, they put something on display for us. Right? In verse 17, verse 33, their emotion is featured. Right? These guys are filled with jealousy. This emotion is eating them alive. And it's so strong that they are enraged to the point of murder. We want to kill these men. Can you see the seething going on inside of them? And then they take action. And what are their actions? Well, they manipulate the system. They have them arrested. They're thrown in jail. There's opposition. They threaten them. They beat them. Right? Those are the actions. We are an opposing villainous force in your life at this moment. Because our emotions are ringing. But the real question for us is, What's the agenda for these guys? Why are they doing this? Right? The moment any of us turns into a villain, it's a good question to ask. What is it that I want right now? Is it safe to say these guys want something? Everybody, everybody on board with that? I mean, this, this is not a group of indifferent people, is it? Like, oh, I don't know. I don't heck beat them. I don't know. Whatever, I'm watching TV. Now, they're emotionally bound to this thing. And they are affected by these events. Their minds are thinking and planning and harming because they want something here. All right, let's see if we can back our way into what they might want. These villains have made previous displays of their lives for us in Acts chapter 4. If you back up, let's watch their actions and emotions here. Acts 4, get introduced to these villains, not for the first time, but reintroduced really. Verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. Right? The, the word actually means irked and provoked in the Greek. These guys are irritated. And proclaiming, I'm sorry, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, right? Classic equation of life. I want something. My emotions are giving that away. This means a lot to me. And I am greatly annoyed by what you're doing. And I'm going to take action now because the emotion has reached the height that it needs to reach. Verse 25 of Acts chapter 4 highlights for us a little bit of the, the heat that's here. Remember when they release the apostles and they go back and they gather with the people and they pray. Listen to the prayer they pray. Listen to the interpretation of what they've just encountered. Verse 25. They're praying. They say, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain. Right, these are strong words. This word, that word rage is actually the, the word that's used in the Greek the, for the snorting of a horse. Right, so can you get a picture here? Right, you get around somebody who's really, I mean, really mad. Oh, they, they snort like a horse. They're so angry. That's who these guys are. So something really, really matters to them. Now, if you, if you want to discover whether ambition has gone off the charts for you, 
look for snorting. <laughs> look, for, look for extreme anger. Look for plotting. Right? Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? Look, look up in verse 16 of chapter 4. They gathered together. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them together and they charged them. Right? Our plotting strategy is happening here. But you, you just brushed up against their ambition. You just got introduced to why do they do what they do? Did you see it in the passages there? What are these guys afraid of? Ambition's usually either driven by something that's really good or something that you're running away from. We either run to things or we run away from things. So that's what ambition's made of. What are these guys afraid of here? They're afraid of losing the people. To keep this from spreading to the people, we're going to have to plot and connive. And if you, if you transfer into your location of temptations to be villainous, isn't that how we are when things threaten us? They threaten our security. They threaten our position. They threaten our pecking order in our group. Somebody else come in, going to displace me, going to be better than me, especially when we're younger people and we're running with a different set of folks in our lives. There's this fear that we feel we've got to protect our territory here. And we begin to think how we can do that. And you're scheming and you're busy. And when you're alone, you're thinking and you're, you're having arguments and you're, and you're replaying conversations that have happened that you've been a part of. And you're wondering what, what that meant that somebody else told you about what somebody else said about you. And you're thinking about that. And why would they, know, why would they even know that? Who, who must they have gotten that from? That means they must have talked to so-and-so. And, and you're just scheming and plotting. What's going on inside of us when we're doing that? Ambition is going on. I want something really bad and my emotions are going to kick in and I'm probably going to hurt somebody. Now that's where these guys end up. Look in Acts chapter six, get a chance to see them responding to Stephen. We'll get to this soon. Verse eight, Stephen full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Right? White keys, everything's going well, amazing good stuff's happening. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up, see the actions? They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place. All right, so now they're lying, right? This is just a form of organized gossip, guys. That's what this is, right? You ever get tempted? in your villainous moment, to cover your tracks, to make sure that you don't lose your position in the eyes of others and you begin to educate other people about what that other person is really all about. 
what they're really like, the goods you got on them that, that you don't know this. If you knew the whole situation, let me inform you. What are we doing in that moment? Well, we're, we're harming people. We're taking actions out of an ambition. We want something here. These guys eventually kind of gives away their passion. When we get to the end of Acts chapter seven and we discover how they respond, their actions that they take in verse 54 of Acts seven. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And their actions at this point, they take up stones and they stone Stephen to death. All right. All right, that's the actions and the emotions of ambition. But what's the makeup of the ambition in these guys' lives? Right, they're, they're Sadducees. If we go back to Acts chapter 5, these are, these are Sadducees. This is who these folks are. But if we went home with one of them and just got into this guy's world and walked around with him and checked him out and listened to what he thinks like behind the scenes when he's not on the pages of the Bible here. What's this guy up to? Who is he? What's functioning in his world? Clinton Arnold says this about these villains. He says the Sadducees were wealthy, a wealthy group of politically influential Jews, many of whom were priests. Right? The Sadducees were, were men of power and of influence in that day. This gathering of men typically would have been the, the Sanhedrin. That was, it was sort of like a religious senate. It was religious and it was political all at the same time. The high priest would have, would have been your main leader in that setting. So he'd have been prime minister kind of a guy. Uh, he would have been attached to political tentacles. Quite often, the, you know, remember, we're, we're, in, we're in the Roman Empire as we discuss this. So inside this Roman empire is a little, a bunch of groups of people and the Romans just, they just, they just want to control everybody for their own ends. And it makes sense to make a little bit of a deal with some of these folks and to let them have a little bit of their own life, their way for the sake of extracting taxes and and getting them to keep the peace that they don't have to give their attention to these disruptions. So there's this little group of people called the Jews amongst the Roman empire. And they've got their own way of doing stuff. They've got their own belief system. They've got their own sort of political world there. And and the guy who kind of calls the shots is the high priest. And so the Romans get involved in who's going to be the next high priest. So this is a very political position that this man comes into. When you went to Jerusalem, the centerpiece of life for a Jew, Traveling to Jerusalem in that day would have been close to going to Washington, D.C., if you're a U.S. citizen. How many of you guys have ever been to Washington, D.C.? Right? You, 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 know, you turn every block, everywhere you go, every business there is related to the government. Like they don't do anything, but the, the government drives the economy there. So it's either a government building or it's a business who does business with the government, or it's a business who does business with a business who does business with the government. Everything is related to the government. Well, if you went to Jerusalem, everything was related to the temple, to this religious system that was here, and it had become corrupt. It was about people on a payroll. It was about ways of life that power were affording people. 
It was about titles and influence. It was about walking amongst the people of Jerusalem dressed in your Darth Vader outfit, making an impression on people that, hey, I am somebody in this place. You know, when Jesus walks in and he dumps the, temp, the, the tables over for the money changers, there's a lot going on there. There's, a, there's corruption on the grandest scale in the sense that God had ordained for this temple to be this unique place where God had allowed his presence to dwell and for people to have contact with heaven on behalf of the deed of the entire world. It's, it's, it's like a rally point for the work of God that God had chosen. I'm going to put my foot right here and I'm going to bless the nations from this place. And these guys had totally lost sight of that. These leaders were about their own agendas, their own cause, their own name, their way of using this system to further their own good, promote themselves, earn respect, have control and influence, play the game. When Jesus comes and knocks those temple tables over where they're exchanging money, here's, here's what would happen. If you were a poor farmer, shepherd, living miles and miles away from Jerusalem, and you were required three times a year to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast that God had ordained for folks to remember that he was a source of their life. And they were to bring offerings for that. But the great distance they had to travel made it prohibitive for them to actually bring with them their own offering. So many of them would sell things that they had back home, take their money with them, and travel all, travel all the way to Jerusalem. So they've come with, you know, with their five bucks to buy a sheep, and they get to the, the temple, and they go up to the money changers there, and they learn that, oh, well, we don't, we don't take dollars here. We take a special currency here. You can only buy in the temple with special temple money. Oh, oh, and the exchange rate, that's only worth two bucks. And they were ripping people off. They had turned it into a business and a way to steal from the people. That's the setting for this group of villains. And Jesus steps in, and and you do recognize when he says, you know, I'm going to destroy. You see why they're all up in arms about destroying the temple? This guy said he'd destroy the temple. Do you remember all this? Because in reality, what Jesus would do would be fulfill everything the temple demanded. And guess what? The temple would no longer be necessary. Jesus was bad for business, basically. And so what was the ambition for these villains? Well, you, you can see here, these guys had a lot to lose. If these apostles convinced these crowds to follow them and believe what they're saying, we are out in the cold. We're nobodies anymore. We lose our position. Rome won't respect us anymore. We got no sway amongst the people. We don't get any kickbacks anymore from the guys collecting taxes and giving a little bit to us, a little bit to the Romans. That all comes to an end. We're going to lose what we have. Do you remember this, this scene? This is not the first time you've met these guys. John chapter 11. Do you remember this? Turn back there real quickly because they just give away their hand here. John chapter 11, Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, so he's about to enter Washington, D.C. with all of its corruption. And on his way in, he performs perhaps the greatest miracle of all the miracles that he's done. He's done countless miracles amongst the people, but Lazarus is stinking dead, right? That's different than just being dead. Lazarus is stinking dead. He's been dead for a while. And Jesus pulls up, 
kind of into a suburb of Jerusalem. That's where this happens. And performs this incredible miracle and raises Lazarus from the dead. More signs and wonders. You know, you know white key stuff. Isn't it amazing that every time you play the white keys, shortly after that, you'll be playing the black keys, right? God does something great amongst the people. And then these guys show up. Chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Ah, the crowd is turning. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. I always love the way they're honest about, you know, this is amazing, but, but they won't go with it. They won't embrace it, but they don't deny it either. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Vader, I'm sorry, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, that's probably what it sounded like in that moment. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. I love that. Right? Does he really know what he's saying? He doesn't have a clue as to what he's saying. He is basically talking about a mafia hit is what he's describing, right? At this point, he transfers from Vader to Vito Carleone. I could just imagine he's sitting on the other side of the room. These guys are panicking and freaking out and he's kind of got this, Michael, come here. You don't understand, son. It's better. And one man dies, then the whole family. That's what he's saying, right? That's this guy's angle on things. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, this is part preaching, part freak show. Okay. He has no idea that he's fulfilling the very purpose of God in saying that. But these guys want something. And isn't isn't it amazing in the midst of all these signs, all these miracles, these moments back up against miraculous stuff is happening. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Should you pause for a moment and say, who, who is this guy? Maybe he's got game. Maybe, maybe we ought to make some room for him. Maybe we ought to consider listening to him. The apostles are running around doing miracles all over the place. Same group of guys. Shouldn't you guys be doing what the crowd wants to do? They want to go with these people. They want to believe what they're saying. They want to go near to this presentation of the gospel. Instead, they don't want to be anywhere near it. this, This should clue us in a little bit about the amazing reality that any of us are seated here this morning. God did lots and lots of miracles in front of lots and lots of people. Many of them just walked away, didn't care, unaffected, didn't stop them in their tracks. They just kept on living the life they were living. What what made the difference for you and me? Why Why did we stop in our tracks and put our whole life in the hands of Jesus Christ at the revelation that he's the son of God and he could do amazing, powerful things in people's lives. What made the difference, right? This is a humbling reality. Always good for us to 
keep our theology nearby. J.C. Ryle says, let us beware of supposing that miracles alone have any power to convert men's souls and to make them Christians. The idea is a complete delusion. To fancy as some do that if they saw something wonderful done before their eyes in confirmation of the gospel, they would at once cast off all indecision and serve Christ. It's a mere idle dream. It is the grace of the Spirit in our hearts and not miracles that our souls require. Right? The men in the book of Acts in chapter 5 here, they don't deny a miracle has taken place. But something is stronger inside of them than the facts. It's their ambition. For these guys, life, life for them had become something so controlling in their hearts. Right? Life was their national religious reputation. Life was their, their cause where they were fighting as the underdogs against those, the Roman tyranny. And they were together in this. Life was their position. Life was their title. Life was their income. This is where I get my paycheck from. I work for the temple. I'm a money changer. If all this stuff goes away, where, how am I going to? That's what life was for them. This is the classic fulfillment of blinded by ambition. Right? Do you remember who these people are? They're the leaders of a nation that God chose to sit upon the earth and to make a proclamation for everybody to know when the Messiah would come. They were the light of the world. And now it's the day for them to flip the light switch on and let everybody see the Messiah has come. And these guys are fighting to keep that light switch turned off with all their might. Why? Because of ambition in their own hearts for something other than what God wanted. They were glory seekers rather than glory givers. To give the glory to God rather than to seek glory for themselves was the crosshair that they were caught in. I remember Jesus addressed these folks back in John chapter 5. He says, you know, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not love. You do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? Right? This is a statement of ability now. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. How could these people stand in the midst of miracles that were intended by God to bear witness that this is the Messiah and he is providing a way for you to be reconciled to God? How could they stand and look at that and not believe? That's our question, right? Well, because you seek glory for yourself, you are blinded to what you're looking at. 
your heart and your life is not about glorifying God and making much of him. It's about trying to figure out ways for everything to make much of you. And you are blinded by that. And you can't even see that miracles are taking place right in front of you. And the crowd all around you wants to give its loyalties to these folks. And you will fight them to the death because you are blinded by your own ambition. You want something so bad that you can't even receive what God has. Paul talked about this in Galatians. He says, for I'm not seeking the approval of man, or I'm sorry, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Do you understand? If, if your life is about you, then you cannot serve Christ. If your life is about glorifying myself, I want a position for me. I want all the world to prop me up. I I want it to exist to make me feel better about me. I want it to further my name and my cause. But then you will not glorify God with your life. You will not. And if your ambition is not to glorify God, then you will not live for Christ. You won't even believe in him. You can't if that's what controls your life. Why does God, why does God include this story for us? Why are these villains on these pages for us to read about here in Acts chapter five and Acts chapter four and John chapter 11? Well, I think they are just an image that portrays corrupt, fallen humanity. This is, this is what corrupt, fallen humanity is made of. Corrupt in that there's, there's some motivation now operating on the inside of every one of our lives. Some motive is active in us that makes us want certain things in life and live a certain way and treat people a certain way and ascribe to certain values. And this sense of fallenness, right? Fallenness has that picture of once you were in this location... And now you are in this location. You are operating in a different location. See, originally, here's the original design for us. The original design was for God to be at the center of all things. Everything about your life. Every, everything you're thinking about you want. Every element of the future that you hope to have. Every aspect of your relationship with another human being. Every way that you use your time and your money. Everything about my life was to have God as the center on it. And somewhere, I'm, on, I'm out here on the edges. God is at the center. But when you fall and we're no longer in the condition in which God created us, guess who takes up the place in the center? I was quick to volunteer. I don't know how you were. In a fallen condition, I'm in the center. Oh, and God gets to stay in the, in the picture somewhere. I'm, I'm good with God being in the picture. He's just a little closer to the edge than he originally had designed in my life. And that's a problem. Because as soon as I get to be at the center, I'm going to have ambitions about being at the center. I'm going, I'm going to want to pursue glory. I'm going to want to be great in my own eyes, in my own ways, in the unique things that make me who I am. I'm going to fight for my greatness. Rather than loving the glory of God, I will love the glory of Keith. 
and I will become very ambitious for the glory of Keith. And when I get emotion ridden just enough, you will be on the receiving end of my villainous actions in your life. Because I'm finally to the point where I'll act now. My emotions, whether they're self-pity, self-righteousness, I deserve this, I can't believe you would treat me that way. My anger now, and I will take action upon you. And I feel justified all about it because, you know, I've defined life as I'm in the middle. How dare you? How dare you not keep me in the middle? Because that makes sense to me. I just can't get why it doesn't seem to make sense to you. And you are so wrong, by the way, (laughs) that you won't keep me in the center of all things. That's where these guys are. That's the condition of their life. Listen, seekers of glory, I think I wrote this out for you. Seekers of glory, they're eager, they're energetic, they're strategic, they're organized, they're connected to others. But when ambition's really full-blown and going in your life, you can be a 24-7, bust it, give it all you got kind of person. Ah, I've seen people driven in life. I mean, you can't get that guy to slow down for one second. Because he is so much wanting to make sure that his life is a glorious one. They lose sleep. They attempt to control. They cling to life. That's what these guys were doing, clinging to life. They're emotionally flammable. You get around somebody who's selfishly ambitious and they're a powder keg. Right? You know what I'm talking about? At some point, they're going to blow up in your face. Because they want something so bad explosive. Givers of glory, those who don't seek it for themselves, but are here to give it to God. They're willing to step aside rather than step up, to stand on the edge rather than at the center, to be overlooked rather than highlighted, to forfeit their life rather than cling to it. And God is good. And the Bible doesn't just have villains in it. It's got some people who really live this Men like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the man. He was the craze. He was holding concerts out in the suburbs and people in the city were flocking out to this guy. If there was anybody who could have loved the attention and the praise being given him, the specialness that was being promoted for who he was in the midst of the people. John the Baptist was the man. But when you met John the Baptist, this is what he looked like. He looked like a guy doing his business and going back to doing his business and go back to doing his business and because he was looking for the one to point people to. So that when he came, right, he's the first one who looks up and says, behold. I mean, it's just a man walking in the crowd one day. All these throngs of people are coming out. Here comes Jesus looking just like one of them. And he stops what he's doing, walks out the water, and looks up and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, that man had eyes to see. And he went on to explain to his disciples who were probably freaking out saying, hey, John, I don't know if you've noticed, but that guy's getting really popular and you seem to be falling off the hit chart here. And he easily explained to them, he must increase, 
I must decrease. He loved that idea. He was living the way he was wired to be living. Remember the apostle Peter clinging to life? The little girl comes up and asks him, weren't you with Jesus? I know you were with Jesus. He curses and swears and clings to life. No, not me. And then God undoes this man and he stands before crowds, the same crowds that crucified Christ now and preaches the gospel because he's not clinging to life. He's not about his own good, furthering his own cause. He's here to bring glory to Christ. And if you kill me, you kill me. But I got something to say to you and you need to hear it. It wasn't a man pleaser. Stephen's going to stand up here in the next chapter and going to preach the gospel and lose his life because he didn't cling to his life. He was here to seek the glory of God. Did you ever get curious about what happened to all the other apostles, the 12, I mean? What, what, what became of these guys? We keep up with about three or four of them. Where's the rest of them? You know, where's Bartholomew? Where's Andrew? Where's Thomas? Thaddeus. First ministry of Thaddeus went global. What happened to these guys? You know, you and I are going to be introduced to the new Jerusalem one day, and there's going to be 12 stones laid as the foundations. And these men's names are going to be on there. These men's names who never get mentioned again in the New Testament. You don't hear from any of them. Listen, God, God's going to do some things in our lives. And when he shows up and does something great in our lives, it's going to be for the glory of his name. And you and I are like John the Baptist or the 12 apostles. God just decides I'm going to show up in a big, loud way in your life. That doesn't mean that you're going to be signed to something big and you'll be big from now on. You're going to be big. Maybe not. Maybe you're going to spend the rest of your life decreasing. Wouldn't it be great to be able to love that? Right? Wouldn't you love to be here this morning loving the idea that I'm going to spend the rest of my life decreasing? Now, some of us are going right now, that sounds really, really stupid. <laughs> That's like the opposite of everything we're taught. Every success book we ever read, every bit of education we ever come across, it's about you being successful, isn't it? But what if success for you is by decreasing? What if what salvation is really all about in our life is about decentralizing us? If I stand up this morning and I say, I'm not sure everybody here even knows Christ. How many of you guys would like to come forward and decentralize your life? You just want, you just want to come forward and have God remove you from the middle of all things and make you an obscure element on the edge. <laughs> and he'll be the center. And people may actually even turn their back to you. Right? I mean, there's, Ray, you're on the edge, babe. You're on the edge of your life, and here's Christ at the center. All of a sudden, if you're pointing people to Christ and your life is glorifying God, you know what? You might get to see at some point this. I'm pointed to Christ. I'm glorying in Christ. You know, Ray might be tempted to say, hey, what about me? Hey, I was the guy who pointed you. You hadn't even known Jesus if I hadn't even said something to you about him. What about me? But if my ambition in life is to point people to Christ, for him to be glorified, for him to be huge in the eyes of other people. Isn't it interesting? That's the opposite of what these villains were about in this story. They were so much about their own glory that when the glory of God was standing right in their face, they couldn't see it.
How about this this morning? Eric, why don't you go ahead and come back? How about we ask God to help us to see whether or not, whether or not in some ways in our lives, in some categories, we are playing the role of the villain. Right? You might be wearing black today. You might not. Let's see. Several of you are dressed like villains. Villains always wear black, you know? Black hat, black horse, black robe, black Mercedes-Benz. Sorry, Bill. (laughs) Sorry. But here, here's, here's where villainy finds its way to our lives. It's in the normal settings of where God has placed you that you're the bad guy. You're the bad guy because you want what you want. You want something for you. You want to avoid the pain. You don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to make an adjustment. I don't want it to cost me anything. I don't know that I want to draw attention to somebody else because it draws attention away from me. Maybe maybe I'm like the, the villainous Sadducees here who were filled with jealousy. Right? How, how do you know if you've got some problematic ambitions? Well, look at your actions and look at your emotions. I'll make it real easy for you to respond here. How many of you have spent some time in the last week You are really, really angry. Is it safe for any of us to guess that you're angry about something? Yeah. Are you angry because that situation isn't glorifying God? I hope so. That would be righteous anger. Problem is, many of us never experience righteous anger. We're angry because something's not glorifying me. I'm a glory seeker. I'm a junkie. You a junkie too? I'm a glory junkie, man. And I get angry. You guys could say in the last couple of weeks, I'm in touch with the fact that I was very jealous. I was studying somebody else, what they did, who they were, how other people looked at them, comments that were made about them on Facebook. And I was jealous in my heart. Why were you jealous? Because you want something that they have. You want something that they seem to be getting. And if you let that just kind of germinate inside of you for a while, let it get big enough to where it's about right here, you will take actions on it. And whether it's just subtle gossip or full-blown in-your-face I want to take you out or I don't ever want to have anything to do with you again. I will not forgive you. All those actions give away that I've got full-blown ambition in my heart. I'm, I'm made of the same villainous stuff that these guys are made of. Right? Isn't it easy to make these guys really jerks? And I sit at a distance and go, I would never, I would never do stuff like that. I, I would. And I do. But how great this morning. That in the middle of this passage, Peter stands and declares to them the gospel. 
Verse 29, Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. We've tasted them. We've experienced them. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. See, villains need the gospel. That's what these villains need. That's what these villains need. I need an exalted Christ who came to do the one thing that had to be done for me that I couldn't do for myself. Take my sins, die in my place, reconcile me to God, then open my eyes to see that everything exists for the glory of God and to stop living my life for the glory of Keith, to live the rest of my days for the glory of Jesus Christ. The moment I do that, everybody in my life just got safer. You all just moved into a safer place. It's not impossible, but it's a whole lot less likely that I'm going to be a villain in your life because I'm after the glory of God in your life now, not after the glory of me. All right, how about we do this this morning? Everybody's eyes wide open. Everybody looking at everybody. How's that for an altar call? <laughs> if you're here this morning and you're, and you're recognizing, Lord, I, I have ambitions in me that make me villainous. I have ambitions in me for my glory that cause me to experience anger and hatred and rage and jealousy. And I need the same Savior that they needed to save me from that. I need him to be the center and I need to voluntarily today be decentralized. And if that's you this morning, I want you to stand up right where you are. Maybe some of us here are standing and we've been honest. We've stood before in situations like this because we recognize the reality of being saved and struggling with these temptations in our lives. I think as you look around, you'd be able to say, hey, I'm, I'm not alone and, I, and I'm not a weirdo. I'm just on my way to heaven. And needing to be reminded about what needs to be at the center. I need that. I need that. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've, you've never been decentralized in your life. You've never come to a place where you said, I need Jesus Christ to be the center of everything I am. Of who I am and who I'm ever going to be. I need him to be that. I need to stop caring so much about me and what, what I could make for myself. And what life I could create for me. And what life I hope everybody else will create for me. And I need to just be about letting him be great in my life. And I want to, today I want to give him my life. Maybe that's who you are standing there here today. Or maybe you need to stand right now after I said that. And you're saying, hey, that's me. I, I've never been decentralized. I, I've always been the guy running my life. But today I recognize this. 
I want to give my life to Christ today. If you're not standing and you'd like to do that, go ahead and stand and join, join the rest of us who are standing as we pray. All right, let's bow, bow our hearts. Let's humble ourselves before God this morning. Lord, we have all read a bunch of stories. We've watched enough movies. Lord, we know who the villains are. It doesn't take long to figure them out in the movie. They are the guys building their own kingdom. They're the ones that are about themselves and they're, they're vengeful hostile and they're protective of their territory and they do things at all cost even if it brings harm to others Lord we we see these characters in a movie and we we rightly see how wrong that is but God in my in my home whether it's in New Orleans or Metairie or Destrehan or wherever I live Lord in my church in my relationships Lord We face temptations just like these guys. Where God, our cause, our name, how people feel about us, what they think about us, gets in our hands and we fight and we manipulate and we plot and we get other people to go along with us and we wrestle with our emotions and we finally become angry enough to do something or say something. Lord, this morning we recognize the villainy that's inside of us. God, we we come to you asking, Lord, give grace upon grace upon grace to our lives. Lord Jesus, you who came to be our Savior, to reconcile us to God and to be working in our lives every day to save us from this villainy that's inside of us. God, you have You have saved us for all eternity. You have brought us to the Father. But Lord, today I find myself having to say again, Lord, would you once again save me from me? Lord, save me from me. Because Lord, without... Your work today, saving me from me, I will, I will wreck something in my life in the next 24 hours. I will cause others to stumble. I will hurt them. I will use them. So Lord, we're asking you today, we're all standing today, God, humbling ourselves before you. Lord, in the story of our lives, there are moments when I am the villain. Lord, today, by your grace, save me from me and bring glory to your name. Lord, I, I want to be like John the Baptist, Lord. I want to I look for where you are and I want to point everybody to you. I want to say he, he must increase in your eyes and I must decrease. I thank you. Thank you for this unique story here in these pages. Thank you for your revelation through the lives of villains of what truly is glorious. It helps us today and we receive grace to live in a manner worthy of the calling, the calling not to be villains, 
but proclaimers and pointers to the glory that belongs to the one true God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.